0: you know a 200 mile range would suit most people a 50 mile range would suit most people on a daily basis if they could charge overnight say 100 pounds 100 miles for generous um you could easily make that car much lighter it would use much less power it would be much cheaper the batteries would be smaller it wouldn't just spoil up too much it would be what we should have and those cars exist and they're being made in china in india and people are using them
1: Welcome to Carbon Conversations, a podcast by Biochar Life, where we explore the cutting edge of environmental solutions. From biochar to smart agriculture to the climate tech revolution, we sit down with experts and business leaders at the forefront of change. This is your host, Matt Rickard. Kimon, how are you doing? Welcome to the podcast. You were just saying, you. It, you were saying it was cold, English weather.
0: It's minus five here and... It's one of those days when everyone's gonna say, What's this global warming all about? Then I'm freezing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. That's a it's a bit of an old line that, but people still do say it, hey. It still does get uh it does get thrown about even in politics. So <laughs> Yep. Well look, we've been connected through Climate Net Mutual uh well, a platform that I use. I know you're 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 involved with and and France who's also been on the podcast. But um I think a good starting point just to If you can give a bit of background on yourself, your expertise, and and before we dig into any of the the, the subject matter.
0: Well, I'm basically an engineer by training. Um, I studied engineering uh, decades ago um, in Cambridge, doing my best to do a general course, which isn't something that you're supposed to do. You're supposed to specialize, but I carefully specialized in mechanics and electronics and civils and structures and control you know so i'm either specialist in everything or in nothing Um, i did a phd on supercharging car engines after that stayed in cambridge as a fellow for a few years went to bristol briefly to lecture aerodynamics then went to a university in switzerland for six years researching how to make hydraulic turbines more efficient and some fundamental aerodynamics ideas and keeping up some car research as well Um, i then moved back to cambridge following my wife's job um, and I myself working as a townie here, um, mainly in consultancy jobs. So a bit of time playing on the edges of Formula One, some more time in automotive, uh, quite a lot of time on medical devices, and a lot of time in companies where basically you go along to a company and say, tell us your problems, we're smart guys, we'll solve them for you. And you do or you don't, but you get to have a lot of fun trying to do it.
1: Cool. So that's – and w- w- how – and sorry if I butted in, and you were going to carry on, but I'm going to ask you probably where you were going. But um, it's an interesting um journey from from all of those things into being a a passionate solver of uh, climate change issues, and and I know we're going to get into some of the startup stuff. But yeah, interesting journey through Formula One, other engineering. Where how did you end up where you are in terms of the work you're doing around um, climate change, climate tech, um, solving the the, the issues we have with with global warming
0: well i mean through my career i'm i'm quite good at what i do technically you know i can do the maths and the technical stuff as well as everyone but i'm obviously a bit of an awkward bugger so i struggle <laughs> sometimes to find jobs so generally i've been following the path of whatever anyone will pay me to do and that has led me i mean my first job was actually doing um military research in the ronald reagan star wars days trying to shoot down satellites wow. Um, and you know, then the Formula One and then medical devices, essentially where is fashionable, I found myself drifting into. Um, so it's not, it's as much pull as push. Uh, the climate change thing though, I mean, at the moment it's very current, um, but I've always known, and something I, I do want to say is that I was 16 in 1980, and I remember then sitting around discussing climate change um, mm-hmm. with people. I remember in 1982 explaining to a girl in Australia, the difference between uh between climate change and the uh oh, what's it called i've lost it now the chlorofluorohygon problem you know uh the ozone layer hole yeah people will confuse them and saying, oh well i'm changing my deodorant to solve climate change and i'll say no no that's for the hole in the ozone layer you're getting the wrong crisis so i i can remember that discussion very. it didn't endear me to australian girls i have to say but uh, <laughs> it, uh it, it is a way i can anchor when i knew about this quite well and it was known in the general population i was fairly educated but I was still an 18 year old you know who doesn't know this stuff and the point of that is that I've always known and been worried about climate change and the facts have always been out there and I want to say that because a theme Mm. recently every generation discovers it afresh and says oh well god why didn't they do something right in the 80s why didn't they tell us you know no one told me about this I just found out god it's ghastly it's just not true it's
1: always been out there you could always know if you wanted to no one has been hiding it that's interesting I I mean I I grew up what was I in the so I grew up in the Kind of 80s, really, but I always remember the 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 ozone layer, um you know, kind of issue, if you want to call it that. But 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 because it got a lot of PR, right? But I don't remember, and certainly I can't claim to be thinking about climate change until much later. But well, what were the conversations at that time? Remind me, like around climate change, because the ozone layer, everyone remembered. Everyone was using aerosols, deodorants, and I think it was like with plastic straws. It, you know, there's certain things that get good media, right? They they become good stories to put out there and they get hooked or they get they, they, there's good hooks. But I don't remember the conversation in the 80s what it was or um, I just may have not been switched onto it back then, but yeah.
0: I mean, to be fair, the general public, it wasn't obvious, but it was not a secret. I mean, I knew about it and I had no special influence. Um, I, I did look back at this to try and convince myself it was true. And... The the landmark that most people refer to is James Hansen, of course, the famous NASA scientist who has been you know, arguing for this and who um, gave testimony to Congress in the late 80s. But he published a paper in 1981 saying climate change is going to be faster than we expect, which was very influential at the time. I do remember it being in the press. And also the key point was he, he, he was saying not it's this new thing I've discovered. It's it's coming faster than we think, implying that it was already known about it. We knew it was happening. Um, I, I must admit, at school, I guess I was taught that the carbon dioxide absorbs, you know, heat, and yeah. that this was uh, this was a problem that was coming. Uh, this was the flip side of easy use of coal and so on. Um, the other landmark that everyone knows, of course, is Al Gore's talk yeah. in I think it was in 2006. Again, there was a big fuss about it. People were very excited about it. Then the financial crash came along. And everyone forgot about it, and rediscovered it again, maybe after COVID or before COVID or something. You know, yeah. there's, I could get one to this. It comes and goes. And of course, the press has a lot to do with it. and Maybe politicians, because they care about, you know, today's news and they care about the next general election. And something with a long time scale like this, it is quite hard to get attention for.
1: It's Yeah, you're right. That Al Gore kind of movement, if you want to call it that, which I was amazed when you just said, what did you say? 2006? Is that, is that when it was? It was yeah. God, I thought it was a lot more recent, but yeah, it probably was that long ago, right? Nearly getting on for, what, 18 years. But that seemed to be a lot shorter span. I mean, in terms of, in terms of where we're at, and obviously we're on a pathway now. It seems like le- much less of a kind of trend in terms of talking about things. It doesn't feel like this will go away in terms of the, the the language around it, which is great, you know. And and I'm involved in it every day, so it's it's kind of different when you're involved in it every day. But where would you put us in terms of what's happening now? In terms of how we're progressing, in, how, in terms of how worried we should be versus how optimistic we should be. I like to put myself on the latter side of that, but we don't necessarily have to be. Um, yeah, give us your, give us your kind of um, diagnosis, I suppose, of all those things. Well, I, uh,
0: I mean, there are altruistic things around, you know, and we could extricate ourselves if we were rational beings who would act for the common good, sacrifice mm-hmm. our present for the future, and all that stuff, of course. Um, which evidence is that we're not. I have a, a graph in front of me, which um, since not everyone's going to look at this screen, I won't hold up to the screen, but I will describe. It is a graph of a line. It's the carbon dioxide measurements at Kea from 1960 to present days. It's a, almost a straight line going upwards, slightly curving upwards. So the carbon dioxide concentration is going upwards and it's going from 320 to 430 or something at the moment. On this graph which is essentially a curve uh, tending to accelerate upwards um, are marked the dates of the Rio climate change 92, Kyoto 97, Al Gore 2006, Copenhagen 2009, Paris 2015. None of these made an iota of difference to the carbon concentration in the world so we are talking a lot Um, Mm. we aren't actually doing very much so far as far as I can the, the evidence shows I mean, maybe it would come up even faster, who knows, but there's no evidence that we're slowing down or stopping anything. It's getting worse. Uh, the more and more you can't avoid seeing evidence all around the weather changing, um, floods in some places, you know, drought in other places, no, the way you've never seen before. There's a, I live for years in Switzerland and there's a glacier in Switzerland where I go quite often because my uncle has a chalet there. and. When I first went there in about the mid 90s, you could walk along a flat plain and touch the end of the glacier. You go there now, you walk to the end of the flat plain, and the glacier is half a kilometer above you. You know, mm. an enormous block ice has just vanished. Uh, it's, it, you know, that's that a simple, discreet example, but every glacier in the world almost is retreating in that way. So things are bad. That's undeniably happening. It's bad. And even if we stop emitting stuff now, we're on a lousy track you know, the weather's going to get worse, sea level's are going to rise, uh, people are going to starve or they're going to migrate somewhere. Um Humanity will survive, but we've already bedded in a whole load of pain. All we can do is try and reduce the pain in the future.
1: Yeah, and let's, um on Sorry. that basis... No, 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 it's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good. I wanted to ask about individual contribution, but I'm going to leave that because I, I think it's really relevant to what you just said. But before we get into that, I mean, on that on that vein of... Yeah, some things, there is inevitability about certain situations. We are where we're at. Um, and we have to get on with it and do what we can, I suppose. Now, I know you've spent, um, you know, a fair bit of time in, in or, or you have a pretty good perspective on the kind of role of technology from a startup mm. perspective. You've, you've kind of, well, well talk, talk us through a bit of that, actually, rather than me doing a bad job of explaining. And then I'd love to dig into some of what you're seeing in terms of startups um, in this space.
0: Yes, I I didn't finish my story of my background, I must admit, and I perhaps should have done. So recently, um, I'm involved in, I spent a lot of time involved in two aspects of climate change, one of which is, or three really, one of which is working on, trying to work out ways to install heat pumps efficiently in social housing in the UK, which is a nightmare problem because it's good for the climate, clearly less CO2 emissions. The flip side is you pay a lot of money to install your heat pump. You don't really save that much money by running it, you know, you're essentially just paying you know, several thousand pounds in the UK or the current abroad to be a good for the climate. Um, it, it, it doesn't really pay back. I mean, you can tinker around the settings and so on and maybe save a few pounds, but it doesn't pay for itself. Um, things like installation do pay for themselves. So this is one of the things I do professionally. The other thing I do is I work with a venture accelerator, which is a place where young entrepreneurs come along and they have ideas for a startup. And the the accelerator matches them up with people with the skills they need. For example, a CEO with a technology specialist or accountant or marketing person or whatever. Uh, and they try and push the idea and then they try and go out and raise money from venture capitalists. Now, and, and of course the idea is that they, ultimately come up with some super invention that saves the climate, you know, and we can all live happily ever after, you know, driving our Ferraris. Um, (laughs) What makes this difficult is that they have to both have a startup that is venture capital fundable, which means it has to have a reasonable prospect of paying back, you know, four times what you invest in it in about three or four years. This is, I mean, I'm speaking loosely, but this is what a venture capitalist because most ventures fail, um, and it has to save a large amount of carbon. It has to work and save a lot of carbon. Um, now, the ways that save carbon and are and are financially viable are mostly done. Um, Low-energy light bulbs are an easy example. Um, yeah. Solar panels, solar thermal, wind turbines—things that will save you money and save the climate. People are doing because people want to make money. So we're kind of getting to things like heat pumps, where actually you have to spend a lot of money to save the climate. Having said that, I do come across a whole load of wacky ideas. And well, I don't think this is the way to solve the climate crisis. Um, and that's one of the points I want to make. I think the way to solve the climate crisis is to stop flying, stop driving, insulate our homes, you know, move back from all the luxuries we're used to for the sake of future generations. Mm. Whether mankind will do that or not, I don't know, but that is what we should do. That would be the easy way to solve the climate change rather than looking for this magic bullet Having said that the money going into these things isn't that much and it's worth investing just in case there really is a magic bullet out there that can save us, yeah, we shouldn't yeah. rely on hope for it. Um, so the kind of things I get are, for example, a whole load of remote sensing ideas, um, trees, uh, forest, agriculture, building, monitoring, gas emissions, all by remote sensing. Of course, these guys don't own a satellite. They're just getting a stream from somewhere, analyzing it in a new way and sending it to someone else really because they're startups. Um, a lot of digital twins, so essentially really just modeling a building and trying to work out how to make it more efficient to run it better and so on. But the, the jargon is cute. Digital twins is the new buzz phrase that venture capitalists like. <laughs> um, a lot of efficient computing. You know, the internet uses a shed load of stuff. Data sensors are, you know, are taking enormous amounts of energy. Saving 10% of that does save carbon, especially if depending where the energy comes from, of course. Uh, quite a lot of biochar, as you all know, around uh simple things applications for encouraging cycling walking and so on you know how not to get lost how to walk safely down a dangerous street whatever it might be um a lot of carbon accounting um a lot of supply chain monitoring you know is your supplier um carbon efficient or not should he be more efficient can you count their emissions to offset yours and, and so on all this kind of stuff uh this offsetting thing i'm a bit dubious about because you know if i'm emitting carbon and i find someone else who isn't and we collaborate then we look good on paper but the better thing would be for me to stop emitting of course yeah yeah yeah, for sure Uh, some things about methane out of lakes which is interesting i think uh a few using funguses for building materials which is quite good because it embeds carbon as long as they stay up a lot of people looking at seaweed kelp other marine type you know plants that do absorb carbon um some stuff about managing the electrical grid so that you know you only use electricity when the wind is blowing so that you don't have to turn on the gas power plants um, a lot of stuff about reusing car batteries now we have more and more electrical cars um, either at some point you can't use the batteries anymore because the range goes down but they're still reasonably good batteries you can either use them in solid sites or you can uh, break them apart and get the materials back in one way or another um, a lot of stuff with the yeast weight heat from waste heat from refineries whatever from breweries um, algae, solar for making fuel, um, things that are fairly well in the mainstream, really. I think, uh, robotic farming, robotic underwater farming, um, green walls for farming, energy storage, some, um, the big ones electric harbor Bosch for nitrogen fixing, um, elect- uh, decarbonizing carbon and steel. We get ideas for that. So these are things that are extremely well known. A lot of people are working on these while. They they sound good. Whether they are some small team coming out of nowhere has the magic button, I don't know really on this. But it, it is if they can solve it, it it's a really big contribution. Um, a lot of recycling, a lot of putting plastic into building materials, things like that. Lots of agriculture efficiency, uh, lots of banking and insurance ideas. You know, banking apps that will lend more money to green things, giving them some credit for it in some way. Insurance that will help people cope with you know more floods. Um, all sorts of agglomeration. um And then, you know, my bugbear a lot of people that just talk about AI, blockchains, nanotubes, graphene, <laughs> choose your pad. I mean, these are, I mean, I'm mixing together apples and pears here. But of course, yeah. These, a, a blockchain ain't going to solve the climate. You might use it as a tool in your application, but somewhere you've got to go and grab some physical carbon and save it. And a computer program ain't going to do that by itself. Uh, what these have in common to a large extent is that as startup ideas, they're a bit like hotel.com. These guys want to make a load of money, really. Mm. Um, some of them care deeply about the climate. Some of them just think climate's the latest thing. You know, last year it was gravity this year it's climate. So I'll, I'll get into this space because it's fashionable. Uh, but they're a bit like hotel.com in that hotel.com doesn't own any hotels. Mm. Um, and all it does is takes a few quid off everyone who books in the hotels. And they do it on such a big scale that they're making a shitload load of money. You could argue the same about Google, Facebook, and so on. Google doesn't own the websites. Um, Amazon largely doesn't own the things it's selling. Uh, they're just taking a little bit. And these, all of these ideas, are really piggybacking on. So, if someone's put a satellite up in space, you know, yeah. someone's got a farm. These guys think that they're going to tap on the computer and they're going to make millions out of putting them together. And they might. I don't know. There is, is no. That
1: a, you there, all? No, no, no. It's good. I'm absorbing it all. Well, actually, there was one question I wanted to ask you just within all within that. Kind of smorgasbord of of, um, of startups, and you know, I get your point. I mean, at the end of the day, the startup space is, you know, not fully, but typically driven by VC money, and VCs are driven by, you know, profits. And uh, however, I think it's a great thing that that money, you know, we're seeing more and more climate tech. I mean, money going into climate tech. I think it's a great place for it to go. So yeah. I don't think there's anything uh, ne- negative. It, there. it could be somewhere else. Yes, of it, exactly. And- Many of these will make money, especially the insurance
0: type ones, the yeah. banking, uh, because they will make money because they will be better than the other guy doing it already, which means that they might not save that much carbon. Um, but the money is much easier to monitor in, in apps like that than the carbon is. You can't really prove whether your new accounting app saves any carbon very easily.
1: But, I, I you know, the, the one I wanted to ask you about was electric vehicles, because electric cars, which are obviously you know, a huge area. You mentioned you've had some experience before this in another industry, and there's often debate, you know, back and forth over, you know, how, what is the impact of these or or how long do we, do they have to be, you know, in service before there is an impact because of batteries, because of, I mean, you have all the social issues as well, the social negative, social impact issues of, of, I've forgotten the name of the heavy metal that comes out of um uh what's the main heavy metal for the battery? Uh, uh um,
0: no, cadmium, cadmium, which pronounce uh, um The other um, one anyway. Cobalt, cobalt, cobalt.
1: Sorry, cobalt. Um but but which was not the part I was talking about, but, but and I have if I put you on the spot here and it's not your expert area, please just tell me. But, um, yeah, as you are an engineer, as you did talk Formula One and you just mentioned electric vehicles, I'm interested to hear your perspective on, um, you know, should we all be moving to an electric vehicle? How important is it? What are the good? What, what's the good? What's the bad? It, it, unfortunately,
0: is my expert area. So you're, okay, you're going cool. to with me because uh, I could speak for England for years on it. Go, go um, for it i i i I gave a presentation which is plug here on the climate link um site if you have to be a climate link member about my view on various things uh the electric cars are essentially a good thing that but they're a step on the way a a good friend of mine is the head of um daimler Benz research into new technologies in north america did a phd with me in he was rather more successful technically, and he shot off his high level. And he came around and chatted, and I said to him, You know, I'm surprised that people are still talking about hydrogen cars, you know, because in the 80s, we all talked about fuel cells, hydrogen cars. They've largely vanished off the scene. Um, it's all become electrical. And he said, Well, I'm glad they are because we all know that electrical isn't the answer. Um, the issues you raise are perfectly valid, and, you know, the social costs, the environmental costs in terms of despoiling the environment, in terms of, you know, modern slavery and whatever in making the batteries of course are wildly significant but this is a separate problem from climate change and yeah, yeah. i'm going to say you have going to choose your problem you know modern slavery and you know exploitation of workers happens you know in fashion in all sorts of fields that isn't the problem i'm trying to fight with, although i'm absolutely for fighting it um the cars electric vehicle evolution be quite interesting if you're of a certain generation, you might remember the C5, which was yep. essentially a little soapbox that you sat in, had an electric motor. Um, I have, it would do 20-mile range, and it would do 15 miles an hour. It was a lethal-looking thing. I wouldn't go on the road. Early, early
1: 80s, I, right? I do remember. I think yeah. it was a – yeah. Um, the, uh,
0: that, that was, but that was ultimately – it used hardly any power. It would get you around. If there were no cars on the road, that would be the way to go. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: if The opposite extreme now is a Tesla. You know, the latest Tesla weighs about 1.8 uh, tons, about, um, I don't know, 800. We getting on for half of that is battery weight. So you're using all that power to move the batteries around, especially if you just, and a, a driver is 70 kilos. So think about that, two tons driving around, 2,000 kilos to move 70 kilos of driver. Mm. Typically one driver in the car. Um, it, it does 400 miles or 394 miles. It will do 160 miles an hour no one needs a 160 mile an hour supercar to be blunt um you could make it you know a 200 mile range would suit most people a 50 mile range would suit most people on a daily basis if they could charge overnight say 100 pounds 100 miles to be generous um you could easily make that car much lighter it would use much less power it would be much cheaper the batteries would be smaller it yeah. wouldn't just It would be what we should have and those cars exist and they're being made in china in india and people are using them Hmm. um there was the i don't know what it's called there was a indian car car that tried to be imported to britain and everyone laughed at it because it was you know it it was legally it was a tricycle or something and um and and it was small and flimsy looks like you get crushed whereas the tesla of course looks like a a modern american car you know you feel great you know i'm invincible in this car and i going to hurt me um uh, and a lot of problem, of course, is this American idea, you need a big SUV so that if you have a crash, the other guy dies, not you. Uh, that, but if we all had small cars that would do 200 miles and use needed maybe a quarter of the battery weight, you know, maybe it could do 60 or 70 miles an hour, um, we'd all be far better off. Equally, of course, we should all go to public transport. But nevertheless, they are saving fuel. Um, and so they are overall a good thing. Uh, the defence of Tesla is that it's an entry, you know, it's bringing up the market, it's making people yeah. aware, and making it successful to have an electric car. I I can't dispute that, um, but it's not the way the future should be. It's the small, cheap electric vehicles, electric motorbikes as well that you see coming more and more. Electric scooters are everywhere now. Cool, uh, but the, it isn't the solution because the problem is you're carrying around all that weight of battery and it takes energy to accelerate it and decelerate it. And you recover some of the energy, but not all. So lighter, smaller, you know, it, it is better.
1: Cool. There, there, there is ultimately no kind of silver bullet here in terms of fixing the, um, you know, fixing the whole problem. And going back to what you said before you talked about all these startups, you gave a, um, you started to give your view on the solution. Um, which I'd love to hear because it's dramatic and and you know you you talked about we stopped flying I mean you know is it that do you see it as that dramatic if we want to fix this I mean we yeah I mean it, is that how you see this situation realistically
0: uh, it would have been easier in the 70s or 80s to stop yeah. it because you know you to invest in technologies we could now have all electric cars electric trains uh, I mean flying famously is about Four or five percent of emissions, so it isn't the answer, but it's mm. it, it's both totemically visible. You know, it's an extremely inefficient way of travelling. Um, if if we had a dictator whose ambition was to make sure that humanity survived as long as possible in the future, and as few people died or were, you know, were flooded or were in drought situations or agriculture failed in various places, then you would cut down on all of that stuff. Mm. Um, and we would essentially have to consume less energy. Most of the stuff is energy. So insulate homes have smaller homes, have more compact cities, so that you don't have to travel so that you can walk to the dentist, walk to your work or take public transport, walk to public transport, rather than need a car. Um, I'm sitting in Cambridge where I can, to be honest, cycle anywhere I want. Um, there are cities in Europe, where I've lived or been where you can walk to public transport and get anywhere you like public transport. There are Bigger cities, and I'm going to pick on the Americans again, where it's impossible to get beyond your own block without a car, mm. because there's no way to cross the road. And apart from that, you know, the, the nearest shopping mall is a mile away, and you can't carry your grocery that far, or, or two miles away, or five miles away. Yeah. So a lot of this stuff has to change. But the what we really what it comes down to is a massive change in your our lifestyles. Mm. Um, I mean, what people mean by standard living is a bit subjective. You might being able to sit at home and read a book all day is a great standard of living but most people would regard this as a massive lowest learning of standard of livings and i kind of agree um particularly the ability to go on holiday and you know my kids are who are late teenagers and their generation let's say not to pick on my kids because they might watch this <laughs> they um they uh, they are very aware and obsessed about climate change they blame us for despoiling the climate in past generations. And they think nothing of flying to Berlin for a weekend of clubbing because it only costs 50 pounds by a plane ticket to, to Berlin and back, you know, and it's cheaper than going to London. So <laughs> there's something mad about the way that it is all priced and working at the moment. Um, a great frustration to me is that trains are so expensive compared with flying. And I've spent a long time discussing this with people yeah. in the train, in the plane industry. The trouble is it just costs more to run a train than a plane at the moment because aviation gas isn't even taxed yeah, yeah no I mean, mind I, bad it. and you're talking
1: tax- you're talking oh. i don't know i mean this is i assume it's specifically a uk problem but it does bemuse me completely when i look at i'm just booking a uk trip at the moment and i'm looking at train tickets and it, i mean it's insanity the, the the cost of traveling from one side of the country to the other for three hours you know bristol to london but anyway yeah. there's probably a whole other debate there which is not relevant i don't know I, but yeah. The
0: UK is mad. Unfortunately, with a train, you have to have a driver. You have to have you know thousands of miles of concrete. You have to have yeah. you know you collecting tickets. You need to maintain the things. So it is just inherently expensive compared with you know tarmac of two miles of concrete either end and a
1: plane. So, so maybe a a segue to a kind of closing question. And you did kind of allude to it there a little bit in what you were saying. But the what advice do you give to people because? I, I started off talking about optimism versus pessimism there is a reality of where we're at what we got to do or what we what we can do you know but how what do you advise in terms of you know the individual that's kind of concerned worried wanting to make a change because it is also so nuanced right and where people live I mean I live in the north of Thailand I mean you know it's completely different here obviously to to there but what adv- how how to advise and what advice i know that's a pretty wide big question but
0: okay i want to make an optimistic point as well about somewhere i've been recently if yeah I'm yeah go around. for it go for it yeah. um I, the answer to that question is i'm not sure that individual action is really the thing i mean i try not to drive when i don't have to i try not to do too much but you know i've just flown to turkey and back in this week um i'm going flying to Switzerland to go skiing next week i'm the total hypocrite I have a big house here, which is quite bad. Interested and I do heat it with gas um, there. I know many people who don't uh, and I'm all I, I admire them greatly, but I think that the people that can afford to and want to are willing to spend their own money to save the climate, mm. it isn't, it's helpful. It isn't the answer. So think who you vote for, you know, go out and yeah. public, say, yes, we will vote for less climate change. Um, advocate it, in the end. I believe it has to be government. in the end. The, the UN process has to wake up. Move away from oil, petrochemical, uh, petrostates. Uh, go somewhere that cares and and get some teeth at last. The fact they took them 30 years after Rio to say that we should stop burning fossil fuels or consider using less fossil fuels is an outrage. They've got to get there. Yeah, that's the only real way at global scale. Otherwise, you know, you, everyone will say, "Oh well, look at China, look what they're doing," and therefore we will not do anything. <laughs> um, but I have I did on Monday go to visit a waste. Tip in Turkey in a mid-sized city, a place about 300 miles 300 meters across. Uh, it takes municipal waste about 90 tons a day. And um, the company I was I'm consulting for or may consult for does uh, it essentially gathers methane. So they have gone in there, they put tubes through all the waste and sealed yeah. it, and they also gather the organic waste, put it organic waste. And they are from this relatively small site, they're generating a shedload of methane. Um, they're selling millions of pounds worth of electricity in the place you know it's 5 or 6 million pounds i don't know the exact number but of that order um, constantly from a relatively small rubbish tip it's just wet and what's nice is you can go and stand there and you can hold the pipe where the methane that is being pumped out and is being yeah. saved from being emitted is flowing you feel it humming yeah. and there tangibly is you know the climate being helped um, there are things that work and this is one of them and you know, I tend to be jaded and so you're going to say, oh, well, that won't, you know, it's not worth bothering with, is it? But when you go there and see it and touch it, see it being used, you think we can do this. You know, there are things that do work as that's well.
1: A, that's, a, that's a good story and that's a very cool solution. Mm-hmm. And I think you're often, I mean, yeah, going back to your comment on VCs, the funny thing is if you can find the profit in the problem, it's doing good. Mm-hmm. It's making money. Yeah. You tend to get a lot more people engaged in the in the solution, which is is always handy. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. yeah cool. I didn't have anything else to ask however, if there is was any, anything I didn't ask or anything else you'd like to share, um please go ahead and and um otherwise, where can people find you if they want to learn more or, or get in contact
0: uh I'm fairly reclusive on social media. I'm afraid i decided that I would spend my whole life on it because I'm an addictive character if I ever got on, so I don't really I'm on LinkedIn. um I'm Kimon R is my name at LinkedIn or we go presumably somewhere on this. My name will be there. I'm the only chemo in the world. I'm one of the few key <laughs> okay. in the world. I will. In um, fact. So people yeah, can find me. It's definitely, me a LinkedIn,
1: it's definitely a, not a name that I've, it's definitely not a name that I've heard before. So, um, but I will mm-hmm. put the link in the. It'll be in the speaker notes. So I'll, I'll put the, your name and, and also link to your, to your LinkedIn. If, if you're mm-hmm. happy with that. And um, yeah, interesting to chat. I, I sense, over a coffee or a glass of wine, I, I could get into some really yeah, interesting chats around some of the startups and the engineering and, and other solutions that you're, you've seen or continue to see. So, um, yeah, I appreciate you joining.
0: I would love to do it face-to-face. Unfortunately, one of us would have to fly, you know, and we'd become a <laughs> climate criminal. I'm such an <laughs> evil person. I've criminal already that um i'm willing to do that to meet you
1: <laughs> awesome came okay, well, on well enjoy your day i hope it i hope it warms up i say in inverted commas and with a bit of a joke but uh yeah i, I hope it warms up but it also cools down if you get my meaning but exactly. um, yes, all the best indeed. cheers nice yeah. to talk to you